It surprised the disciples to hear such words. The temple destroyed? How can this be? The temple is central to Jewish worship. Lord, when will these things be? The only thing that they could understand from that statement was that perhaps the temple would be destroyed and he would be rebuilding it and establish his kingdom. That's what they were expecting. That's what they were hoping for. They didn't have any idea that there was anything like the 2,000 years that would ensue after the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. They had no clue as to the church age and what would involve so many people, Gentiles as well as Jews, in a great move of the Spirit of God until he returns once again to the earth. They didn't understand that he would be leaving, although he had told them that he would be leaving. They had no idea what he meant. They were confused and perhaps somewhat distraught at the news that the temple would be destroyed. And it caused them to ask those three questions. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? They put all three together in one barrel, if you would, one basket full of possibilities, probabilities based upon what they understood the word of God to say. So Jesus began to unfold for them a series of events that would follow his departure. A series of events that they weren't prepared to hear, but he is telling them and us all of the details that they needed to know and the church needs to know until he does return. Now, there are some things that are not included in this Olivet Discourse. I want to make it perfectly clear that the majority of what is being spoken by Jesus in this discourse has to do primarily with the Jewish nation. The church hadn't been established yet. Although Jesus had said earlier on to Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, the word ecclesia was a Greek word and is a Greek word that is translated church. And it just means assembling together of a body of people. But there was no definitive church age described by Jesus. There was no mention of it in terms of what it would look like, how it would be that it would be formed and how it would progress through the years. As far as they were concerned, there was more of an immediacy to the coming of the kingdom that he would establish. They saw nothing beyond that. So all of these words that Jesus is here speaking apply again to primarily the Jewish nation. But yet we as the church need to understand the context in which these things are written, recorded for us by Matthew, because they are so very significant for us in these last days. Our last time together in this particular portion of the scripture, we looked at the very first portion of Jesus' answer to those disciples' questions. And we ended at verse 14 of chapter 24, where it said, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. So that's obviously something that we know from historical data, that he was speaking of something very far in the future from their perspective to our present day. The kingdom of God will be preached to all the world as a witness to all nations. And then the end will come. So he's answered now two questions. When will these things be? The destruction of the temple? He talked about that. And now he, at verse 14, said, including this church age, this is what will take place as you approach the end of time. And in verse 15, he begins a discourse with regard to a particular period of time, and we are not there yet, but it is a period of time that is well documented in the Word of God. We'll be looking at a couple of other scriptures today besides this portion in Matthew's Gospel. 
We'll be looking at Daniel's prophecy, and we'll be looking at some statements that the Apostle Paul made in First and Second Thessalonians. We'll reference some material that is found in the book of Revelation. All of that put together for a very specific purpose. Because there is much confusion about what Jesus is here going to be talking about. Many in the church have different opinions about this portion of the discourse of Jesus. I submit to you that what I believe to be the most accurate, most likely, may not necessarily be exactly as I describe it to you. It's future events. None of us can see into the future, but we can put the Scriptures together in a way that gives us a good understanding. And I want you to remember, Jesus wants His disciples to understand. And so it requires a study of the whole counsel of God. And part of the reason there is so much discretion among various expositors over these particular portions of Scripture that we'll be reading today is because they don't do a thorough job of comparing Scripture to Scripture. They make assumptions. And many of them were assumptions that were probably valid when those assumptions were made. For instance, during the church age, after 70 AD, there was a dispersal of all the Jews from the land of Israel, and they were no longer a nation in the land. And so all of the scripture references that were prophetic references to the nation of Israel, they didn't know what to do with them. So they began to spiritualize all of those references to Israel and saying, well, that's a reference to the church. Unless, of course, it talked about death and destruction, and they talked about the fact that that belongs to Israel because they were indeed destroyed and they were judged by God. But every other promise that is a blessing for the nation of Israel was turned into a blessing for the church. Now, we can indeed take some of those to ourselves as promises to the church as well as to Israel, but never to the exclusion of Israel. And my point here is very, I hope, clear to you. Israel is in this book the central, the important portion of this portion of Scripture is based upon a knowledge of the fact that Israel will be the nation of Israel, as described in the Word of God. The people of God, who are descendants of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob, and Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, and his twelve sons, the twelve tribes of Israel, are all of them included in what is being spoken of here. So during that period of time, until 1948, when there was no nation of Israel, it confused many Faithful stewards of the Word of God. It shouldn't be confusing any longer. One of the key reasons we teach what we teach with regard to end times prophecy is the fact that the Jews are now in the land. Ezekiel 36 and 37 give us very clear indication that there was going to come a time prophesied by Ezekiel in that portion of Scripture that the Jewish nation would be revived once again. The Valley of Dry Bones. Read that portion of Scripture and you'll see that it's a reference to the nation of Israel coming again into the land. But that portion of Scripture doesn't say anything more than the fact that they will have bone and flesh and muscle and they will stand and they will be given life. I submit to you that that is a process that's still undergoing for the people of Israel today. They haven't received spiritual life. They're there physically. But there's coming a day that's described elsewhere in many places where they will be once again the people of God. And if you exclude that, then you can believe all of the other opinions that are presented that say, well, this only applies to what took place in 70 A.D. and it has nothing to do with end days. Or you might be willing to understand, if that's your understanding, to assume from that that the rapture of the church won't take place until at the end of the tribulation period. I am not in agreement with any of those. 
nor are any of the Calvary Chapel churches that adhere to the central doctrines that we as Calvary Chapel churches should be adhering to. We're a group of churches that are like-minded with certain doctrines that are distinctive doctrines, and that's one of them. We believe in what is known as the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. There are some who don't even believe in the rapture of the church, but it's clear in the scriptures that that's going to take place. The timing of it is an issue. And I'm going to try to convey to you some of the reasons why I believe the church will not be here during the time that Jesus is speaking of in this portion of Scripture. So let's take a look at what Jesus says, beginning with verse 15, chapter 24, Matthew's Gospel. Therefore, Jesus speaking, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, Whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the mountain, the housetop, not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babes in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. There are several things that need to be pointed out from this portion of Scripture that will help us, I believe, to understand the context and to whom it applies. First of all, again he says in verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, that phrase is a reference to the prophecy in Daniel in chapter 9 of that great prophetic book. Daniel was given a great privilege of many different visions that he had had throughout his life. He was a great man of God, a faithful man of God, to write down for us the many things that God had shown him. One of the most important of those things that he was shown is found in chapter 9, beginning with verse 20 of that portion of the Old Testament Scripture, Daniel 9, verse 20. Gabriel, the angel, is giving him details about that which is to take place with regard to the nation of Israel, specifically with regard to his people, Daniel's people. He was a Jew. It's his people, not the church, not the Gentiles, the Jewish nation. Read with me verses 20 following in verse Uh, chapter 9 of Daniel's great book of prophecy, he says there, Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Remember, he was in captivity in Babylon praying this prayer. Jerusalem had been destroyed. Judea was laid waste. He was crying out to God, knowing that the time was very near, that it would all be restored, but he didn't know the details. He was praying about that. He says in verse 21, Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. Underline that. His purpose was to give Daniel skill to understand. The purpose of this prophecy was to give Daniel a level of understanding that he did not have with regard to his own people, the nation of Israel. Verse 23 continues, he says, At the beginning of your supplications a command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore consider the matter and understand the vision. And here's what the vision was. He says, Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. The reference to your people is a reference to the Jewish nation. Your city is a reference to Jerusalem. Seventy weeks. Well, the word weeks 
in the Hebrew is simply sevens. The number seven, plural form. It could be seven weeks. It could be seven days. It could be seven months. But we know from historical evidence that it's a reference not to any of those, but to seven weeks of years. Seven years. Each of those periods of time, 77s, constitutes a period of 70 times seven years, or 490 years. So Gabriel is making it very, very clear to Daniel, there is going to be a period of time, which is 490 years, that the Lord is going to have specific dealings with the specific nation of Israel and with the city of Jerusalem. Keep that in mind. And then he goes on to say, this is the reason why this is given, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins. Now that hasn't taken place yet, my friends. To make an end of sins, there is still sin in the world, but there is coming a day when that will not be the case any longer. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. This is what the Word of God declares. Sin will come to an end. There will be no more sin. There will be no more death. There will be no more sorrow. Those are things that are still future. But he's saying that all of what is being spoken with regard to the nation of Israel has to do with that end time to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand, again, you should be able to understand. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. Now, you need to go through some of the history of the nation of Israel to find out what he's referring to here. It's really quite simple. It's basic. The command was given by the king of Persia, Artaxerxes. He gave the command to Nehemiah, one of the Old Testament prophets, Nehemiah. He was a cupbearer in Artaxerxes' court. And it is Artaxerxes that gave the command for Nehemiah to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. And that is a specific date in history that we have a record of. Archaeology has discovered this actual documentation found in the Assyrian libraries. Artaxerxes had made this statement on March 15, 445 B.C., according to our calendar. That's significant because it gives us a starting date for this 69 years that he's just spoken of. Seven years plus another 62 years of weeks, for a total of 483 years. That's how God has shown how he is going to impact the people of Israel throughout those periods of time. The first seven periods of seven, 49 years, took place during Nehemiah's time. When he went to Jerusalem, he did embark on the rebuilding of the city, and it did take a total of 49 years before that construction was complete. The remaining 62 weeks also are 62 seven-year periods, a total of 434 years from the time that first seven-week period had been completed, brought us to 32 A.D., April 6, according to our calendar, 178,880 days, according to the Babylonian and Hebrew calendars, 360-day years. That brings us to that particular date, in our calendar rendering, and that is assumed to be, and it is rightly so that we should assume it, it is clarified by Jesus himself, it is a day that he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, what we call Palm Sunday. Remember in Luke's Gospel, Jesus cried out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you had only known this your day, He was referring to the prophecy of Daniel back then. They should have been able to calculate precisely when he would enter into the city of Jerusalem. And he did it exactly on the right day. That's why it's so remarkable when you read through the scriptures in the New Testament scriptures, especially talking about Jesus during his lifetime on this earth. Over and over again we see Jesus saying, My time is not yet. My time hasn't yet come. And then on that day... My time is come. He knew exactly 
They should have known exactly when he was to arrive. It's recorded here in Daniel's great prophetic word. The angel has given him that wonderful information pertaining to the nation of Israel. But wait, he said there are 70 weeks of sevens. We've only looked at 69 of them. There must be another seven left. Another seven year period that has not yet been fulfilled with respect to the people of Israel. Let me reread verse 25 again. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. And the street will be built again in the wall, even in troublesome times. And that was the case. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah will be cut off. That's a Hebrew phrase that is used throughout the Old Testament, and it means he will lose his life. You might think, well, the Old Testament doesn't talk about the death of Christ, the Messiah. It talks about His coming. Well, no, read Isaiah 53 and you'll see that He was a suffering servant. And you'll see that the talks there about His entering into a grave. And here, it talks about the fact that He will be cut off. That means He will be killed. Messiah will come and He will be cut off at the end of that 69th week. It will be fulfilled. But not for Himself. He didn't die For himself, he died for you and for me. See how wonderfully clear the Scripture is when you put what is written in the Old Testament together with what is revealed in the New Testament. It should be as plain as ever it possibly could be plain. He goes on to say, and the people of the prince who is to come. Now he's looking beyond that 69th week. Take note of the fact that there's a break in this line of history He says the Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And yes, that did happen in 70 A.D. by the Romans. And that's significant because he's talking about the people of Rome, the nation of Rome. They were in power in Jesus' day. And Titus... Vespasian did come in 70 A.D., just as was prophesied, to destroy the temple and the city of Jerusalem was was ransacked, besieged, and many people died. And it was a terrible time. But I submit to you that that was only one of the very terrible times that Israel as a nation had to endure. You look through history and you'll see that over and over again, this people have been totally, almost totally wiped out by so many attempts to destroy them. But never has anyone been able to do so. Not Hitler. Not Rome. Not Spain. Not the church. This says the end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then, listen, then he, the prince that shall come, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Titus did not make a covenant with Israel. There was no covenant made in 70 A.D. That's a key factor. That means that this portion is pointing to something that has not yet happened. And we'll corroborate that statement with what we will read in the New Testament regarding this one who is known by most people as the Antichrist, referred to in the Bible as the beast. But before we get there, let's finish reading this great word from the angel given to Gabriel. He'll confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Well, wait a minute, there's no temple in Jerusalem. Oh, yeah, that's right. Are we expecting a temple to be built? For certain, yes, it will be, in fulfillment of the Word of God. We'll get more to that in a moment. It says later in verse 27, On the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined 
is poured out on the desolate. So there's still punishment ahead for the people of God because of their great sin of rejecting the Messiah. Daniel was given this great vision of things that are yet to come. Prophecy is so very central to what the Word of God contains for our benefit. In fact, if you look through the Scriptures, you'll find that nearly one quarter of the Word of God is prophetic in nature. But some of these things that are being spoken of here cannot have been yet fulfilled. And so we need to look at other Scriptures to corroborate, to compare Scripture with Scripture and to see what it is that he's referring to in this great passage. So turn back with me to Matthew's Gospel, and let's read again a few more verses beyond chapter 15. I mean, chapter 24, verse 15. But in verse 15, we've looked at this, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Again, that has not yet happened. But it's referred to by Daniel, this abomination will take place. And what will take place? He is going to come into the temple and desecrate the temple. Now back in around 330 B.C., there was a Greek leader named Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus, depending on how you pronounce the word. But he came into Jerusalem And he desecrated the temple. And so a lot of expositors believe that he fulfilled that in 330 B.C. Take note of what Jesus is saying. He says, when you see, pointing to yet future, the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, it hasn't happened yet. It didn't happen in 70 A.D. Titus did not desecrate the temple. But there is one who will. And the Apostle Paul speaks about this. Turn with me to Second Thessalonians. In 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, Paul speaks of the second coming of the Lord in almost every chapter of those two books. We're reading from chapter 2 this morning of 2nd Thessalonians, where Paul gives detail about what Jesus has said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. Paul says this in verse 1 of chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter from all of us, as though the day of Christ had come already. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. What Paul is saying is, this one in the end days will come, and he will come into the temple that will have been rebuilt, and in the middle of that seven-week period, according to what Daniel said, he will desecrate the temple. And if you couple all of that with your readings in the book of Revelation, read Revelation with this understanding. In chapter 6 through chapter 19, it is a reference to that period of time that Daniel spoke of, that last 70th week of Daniel. It is a seven-year period of time known as the tribulation period. And it's recorded for us in the book of Revelation in great detail what will take place during that seven-year period of time. The church is not mentioned in any of that portion of Scripture. The last place before the tribulation period comes that the church is mentioned is in chapter 5 of the book Revelation and we are in heaven with the rest of the saints. In chapter 4, verse 1, the Lord tells John, 
come up here. And it's a picture of the rapture of the church. It takes place before the tribulation takes place. That's why we believe so strongly that the rapture of the church will indeed take place before the tribulation. And it's coupled with other passages of Scripture that says, God will not suffer you and I, the church, to see His wrath upon the people who reside on the earth when He pours out His wrath. That wrath will be poured out. And that's really what you see here in this portion that we just looked at in, in Second Thessalonians. He said, Let no one deceive you by any means that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. Now there's a lot of question as to what he meant by that. But let me submit this to you. There's coming a time when there is one who is restraining that will no longer restrain evil. And that one is the Holy Spirit of God. And so he that is taken out of the way is by our understanding, a reference to the fact that the Holy Spirit will no longer restrain evil in the world. Now, you look around and there's plenty of evil, is there not? We saw, have been seeing, and will continue to see evil prominently displayed in our own society and throughout the world. It will get far worse than it is now when the Holy Spirit no longer restrains that evil that is so very powerfully present in the world today. It's going to be a terrible time. Don't ever think that you and I or anyone else who believes in the promises of God who says you will not suffer His wrath. Keep looking up. Your redemption draws near. He tells us to look for Himself, not the Antichrist. And that's what I intend to continue doing And I pray that that's what you continue to do also because that will take place before Antichrist is even on the scene. We may never know the identity of the Antichrist. I don't want to know the identity of Antichrist. I'm not concerned about him. I'm concerned about the people who will be left behind who will be forced to deal with such evil that will come upon the face of the earth during that seven-year period. So Paul makes it very clear. It will begin when the Antichrist is revealed. He has not yet been revealed. How is it that he will be revealed? By virtue of one particular event. And Paul tells us, and Daniel told us, he will make a covenant with the nation of Israel. And that covenant will be a covenant of peace. If you look at the book of Revelation chapter 6, the Antichrist, the beast, comes on a white horse implying he's coming with peace in mind. But he's deceiving the people. There will be no peace. There will be wars. There will be kinds, all kinds of troubles that will be in store for all of those people for all seven of those years, not just for the last three and a half years. And there are those who make a distinction The Great Tribulation is indeed referred to as the last three and a half years of that seven-year period of time. But I submit to you that all of it is a tribulation period, known by Jeremiah as the time of Jacob's trouble. He'll start out showing himself to be in favor of establishing peace, and Jerusalem will be central to that. That's why I believe that the Ezekiel War described in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 will take place before the Antichrist comes on the scene. He'll have a solution. The world will be in a total chaotic state. The church will have been gone for I don't know how long. There's no indication how long it will be between the time of the rapture and the time of the tribulation as it begins. But this I know. When the church is gone, the Holy Spirit will still be on the earth but not restraining evil any longer allowing mankind to have their free will, to do their own thing. And like I said, if you think it's evil now, you don't want to be here when that kind of evil begins to unfold. He is coming, and He will indeed set Himself up as a global leader. And the world will follow after Him because He had a solution. But in the middle of that seven-year period, Daniel tells us he'll enter the temple 
and defile the temple, making himself to be God according to Paul, desecrating the temple, just as was promised in the Word of God. And after that, then he will require that no man or woman can buy or sell unless they have the mark of the beast on the forehead or on the hand. There will be ultimate control by the Antichrist in those last three and a half years. But that's when everything breaks loose. Spiritual warfare as well as physical warfare will take place. Many people will die. But the Jews will be favored by God. Those who accept the fact that this must not be, after all, the one who we thought it was. They'll be duped into believing he was during that first three and a half years. But they'll come to the conclusion when he enters that temple, they'll say, Nah, that's not for us. This cannot be the true Messiah. And those who take that stand will be miraculously preserved by God. They'll escape. And that's what Jesus is talking about in this portion that we've read. There is reason for them to escape. And he's going to say again, he's given this word that they need to recognize. That's why I believe when Matthew wrote this, chapter 24, verse 15, ends with a parenthesis that Matthew inserts. Whoever reads, let him understand. It may be that there will be, after the rapture of the church and the beginning three and a half years of the tribulation period, that this New Testament gospel will be read by many Jews. We're told in the book of Revelation that there will be 144,000 Jewish evangelists throughout the world. There will be two men standing in the western wall at Jerusalem for the first three and a half years, doing signs and miracles. There will be plenty of evidence for the Jews to believe that this one that they think is their Messiah truly is not. Only a third of them will come to that conclusion. Do you realize that when the tribulation begins for the first three and a half years, about a third of humankind will be dead? In the last half of that tribulation period, another quarter of the world's population will have died. Nothing like that has ever taken place. They were expecting today, I believe, that the world population would be in excess of 8 billion people. A third of that, gone, and then a quarter of the rest, gone. I'm not really sure that I can do the math in my head, but that's at least half of the people who are alive today will be no longer alive at the end of that tribulation. Plus, those of us who are raptured before any of that takes place, but my sense is that there aren't as many of those who will be raptured as I would like to think. Churches are losing a lot of people in these last days. People are turning away from God in large numbers. Jesus talked about that. Cares of this world overwhelm some people and cause them to say, I can't, I, I, I just don't know. I, I thought it was right to believe what was spoken of by the pastor with regard to Christianity, salvation, deliverance, forgiveness of sins, but it's just not working for me. Do you know anybody that's saying those kinds of things? I do. Pray for them. It's not too late. Even if the Lord comes for His church and they're still in that place, I'm wondering whether they will be perhaps among those who will be saved during the tribulation period. There will be a multitude, apparently, that will be. But for the Jews, that last three and a half years, protection by God, miraculous protection. The book of Revelation explains it for us in chapter 14, I believe. They'll be taken 
to a place in the wilderness, protected. We believe it to be the city of Petra, which is in southern Jordan today. It's a rock city. It's capable of holding as many people as Manhattan easily. It'll be just a perfect place for them to hide from the Antichrist. So Jesus, in verse 16 of chapter 24, talks about that escape. He says, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, Mount Seir, in Ephraim, I mean in uh, Esau's territory. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Any of you spend any time on the housetop? Not very likely. In Israel, it's very common that they would have a housetop, basically patio-style area, where they could go to in the cool of the evening and relax. So it was very common for them to be on a housetop. Jesus says, when you're on a housetop, don't bother going down to get your stuff. Just get out of Dodge. Actually, it's Jerusalem. It's very Jewish. Verse 18 says, And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. Verse 19 says, But woe to those who were pregnant and to those who were nursing babies in those days, because it slows you down, ladies. You want to make haste. You want to be able to get out of town fast. And these are warnings to not the church, but to the Jewish people living in that region in Judea. He says in verse 20, And pray that your flight might not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Another indication, he's talking to Jews. Well, in winter it would be difficult for any one of us, but none of us would be concerned about whether it's a Sabbath day or not, but the Jews would, because if it's on a Sabbath, to a Jew you can only travel a certain distance and not any further according to the law. So they would be restricted in their ability to escape because of the fact that it was a Sabbath day. Again, this is very Jewish and it has nothing to do with the church. And then in verse 21, to cap off what Jesus has been saying again, he says, For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor ever shall be. Nothing like it. The Holocaust was bad, but it's nothing like what will take place during the tribulation period. But God is going to do something to limit what can be done by men during that period of time. He says in verse 22, Unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. God will not allow man to totally destroy himself. There will be a number of people who will survive that tribulation period. Many won't. But what's he mean when he says, but for the elect's sake those days will be shortened? Is not the church the elect of God? And I say to you, yes, the church is the elect of God. But I say again that this has nothing to do with the church. The Jews are known as the elect of God. Read Isaiah 65 with me. Isaiah 65, verse 8. It says, Thus says the Lord, As a new wine is found in the cluster, and no one says, do not and one says, Do not destroy it, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servants' sake. So he's going to bless them. He's talking about the Jewish nation. That I may not destroy them all. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah, an heir of my mountains. My elect shall inherit it, and my servant shall dwell there. Who is God's elect? The nation of Israel. Who is Jesus talking about? The Jewish people. Don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying. He says, I want you to understand. Do you understand? He's talking to the Jewish nation, specifically in this portion. Now, we'll look next time at some of the things that we will be very familiar with as the promises to all of us who believe. But in this portion, 
I want you to understand, let it be clear to you that this is yet to come. This is something that will take place in some days in our future, perhaps sooner than we realize. Things are lining up for these events to take place. The Ezekiel War that I mentioned, chapters 38 and 39, the players are in place for that war to begin. All it will take is for God to put a hook into Russia's jaw to bring them down into Israel to attack Israel along with Iran and Turkey and Libya and Sudan and that war will be history. Hasn't happened yet. Damascus will be destroyed somehow in a day's time. It will become a ruinous heap. Isaiah 11. And it tells us that it is an instantaneous event. The implication is probably a nuclear explosion in Damascus. How can that happen? And what significance does that have? Well, you take a look around with Hezbollah promising that they've now got over 150,000 missiles that they can launch toward Israel. You look at Hamas in the southern part of Israel in Gaza Strip, and they too are being armed to the teeth with weapons supplied by Iran. It's coming. The stage is indeed being set. So what are we as a church supposed to do? Are we to be concerned about all of these things? Yes. Because we've got people we know that need to know. We've got people that we're familiar with. Family, friends, neighbors. They need to understand what's coming down is dangerous, is terrible, evil times. If some of these things begin to take fall before the church is taken, that gives us great opportunity to witness. But even during the tribulation, because the Spirit of God is not restraining evil, there will be all of those wonderful things taking place. The 144,000 witnesses, the two men in Jerusalem doing miracles. In the last three and a half years, the angel of the Lord will be flying across the world, around the world, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And yet they still will not turn. Before the first three and a half years are ended. They'll be crying out for the rocks to fall on them, to deliver them from the wrath of the Lamb of God. Do you think that that's going to be any time of fun for anyone? I hope not. I hope you realize this is a very dangerous time to be alive. We're not there yet. And we won't be there because I believe the Lord will take us out of that. That's, I believe, the promise of God's Word to you and I who believe. That we will, yes, escapist, that's me, I'm an escapist. We will not suffer the wrath of God. Jesus said, pray that you may escape all those things that are to come on the face of the earth. He said, keep looking up, your redemption draws near. Paul said, when he talked about the rapture of the church, comfort yourself with these words. How can we be comforted if that rapture takes place after such terrible events as what is described in the book of Revelation that will take place during that last seven-year period of time known as the time of Jacob's trouble? But we have the promises of God. We have the assurance that we will indeed be taken out at the appointed time. None of us knows when that will be. Please don't ask me to set a date. Please don't believe anyone who has set dates. The next portion of Scripture in chapter 22, which we'll look at next time, talks about a time when there will be false Christs coming, proclaiming themselves to be Christ. They will be saying, see, here's Christ, there is Christ. Do you know that in 1917, Jehovah's Witnesses, leaders, proclaimed that the Lord was coming in that year to establish His kingdom. Well, it didn't happen, and so they had to make some revisions to their doctrine. And so they began say, saying, yes, He did come, but He's in a secret place in Manhattan, and He'll reveal Himself eventually to the whole world. They believe a whole bunch of other doctrines that are way off target and very cultish and heretical. But that really is what Jesus is going to warn against next. Keep in mind, 
you have a great privilege bestowed upon you that the Lord drew you to Himself and He saved you. He gave you eternal life, the promise of forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of your body to an eternal state where you will live with Him forever and ever. Don't take those things for granted, my friends. Trust in Him that He will indeed bring all of these things to pass. Again, let me read what Paul says. Found in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, reading from verse 13, he says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. I'm saying the same thing here. I don't want you to be ignorant. Concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. He's talking about those Christians who have died already. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who are asleep in Jesus. He will bring with Him those who have gone on before us, our dear friends who have passed on. They're with Him now in glory. Their souls await the final consummation where their bodies will be reunited in a great move of God among His church where the dead in Christ shall rise. The graves will be emptied. That's what He's talking about here. He says in verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. They go first. The graves will be emptied before you and I, if we're still alive, take off. But we're all going to go up. That's the promise. Look at it. Look at it. For the Lord Himself will descend, verse 16, from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Make no mistake, there's no mention of Him setting foot on Mount Zion here. That's mentioned in Zechariah in the Old Testament, chapter 14. He will come in the last days, at the end of the tribulation period, to judge the world. That's a different text. That's a different context. That's a different message. We'll get to that eventually, if the Lord wills. But this is not the second coming upon the earth to reign. This is a taking up of the church from this earth into glory in the clouds, in the air. We won't need to be any more touching this ground until He comes with us at the end of the tribulation period. And that's also described in the New Testament and Old Testament Scriptures. Again, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. That's the promise to the church. That's why he says in verse 18, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. You don't have to worry about going through that tribulation period. And if we were to have to go through that tribulation period, there would be no comfort for the church. I submit to you that this understanding of what we've read today and what we've put together through these particular scriptures that we've looked at is the very best likelihood of events that will take place soon. So I'm looking forward, I hope you are, to that great and glorious time. It is called the blessed hope when He comes for the church. When He comes and says, come up here. And we, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, will be changed. And this mortal will put on immortality. Are you ready for that? Are you longing for that? Are you hoping that that might happen really, really soon? I am. But it may not. Paul thought it was, in his day, an imminent return. Take a note of the fact that he says, we who are alive and remain. He was thinking himself to be among those who would be caught up together with 
Not only the saints that were already dead, but all the saints who were alive on the earth when he was present on the earth with them. That didn't happen with Paul. It didn't happen with Peter. It didn't happen with John, James, Jude. It didn't happen with Martin Luther. It didn't happen with Billy Graham. It didn't happen with Neil Fluelling and all of the others that you know. But they get to go first. And keep in mind that their souls are in heaven. Now, I know that that's difficult to understand. What, what, what need is there? If they're already in heaven, why do they need to come with Jesus and be reunited with their bodies? Well, that's just what is the resurrection all about. It's the establishing of a new, eternal experience for the believer. And it involves a resurrected body because Jesus, our first fruits, has a resurrected body. And we will be like Him. I'm looking forward to that. I hope you are too. We have promises. And we should be willing to let others know. We should be excited about what's lying ahead for us. Yes, 2023 is the new year that we're facing right now. We saw much in 2022 that were very, very evil things that took place. I submit to you that it's not going to get any better. If we're still here, we can make a difference. We can shine light. It will get darker and darker. And keep in mind that John tells us in the first chapter of the Gospel of John that men love darkness rather than light. They'll despise you. They'll want to get rid of you. That's already in progress now. There are many who are saying, we've got to get rid of that church, that Christian church, because they're a hindrance. Well, we are a hindrance. Because we're here, they cannot do what they want to do. But when we're gone, the Holy Spirit's still here on this earth because they were still getting, there will still be people getting saved during that tribulation period. Make no mistake, He doesn't leave. He just changes the things that He's doing. His focus is no longer on the church, but His focus will be on the nation of Israel. And all hell will indeed break loose during that time. Rejoice, my friends, in what you know. But let your heart have the compassion of Christ for those who do not know. And trust in the Lord that He will take you through whatever comes our way. He will provide your every need until your time is ended. And if you are to leave this earth before His return, that's not a bad thing. You'll be with Him. To live is Christ. To die is gain. We have the promises of God's Word. We cannot sorrow as the world sorrows. But we can have the compassion of Christ for this lost and dying world around us. Let us be filled with His Holy Spirit, people, in these last days that He might be glorified in us and that we would trust in Him no matter what takes place. If that's our position, if that's our mindset, what can Satan do to us? Jesus had said, He's got nothing on me. I want that same attitude that Jesus had with regard to this enemy of our souls. He's got nothing on me. I have victory in Jesus. I am an overcomer. I am more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus my Lord. I am saved. I am delivered from the power of sin, from the power of death, from the evil one. And I've not any longer had to bear the chains that weighted me down when I was an unbeliever. I am set free and I've been victorious in Christ Jesus because He saved me, miraculously saved me, and He gave me eternal life. The promise 
of an inheritance, of becoming one of his sons in glory for the rest of eternity, living with all of the saints of God together, worshiping and praising our Heavenly Father.